As you know, if you've been with us or following on the internet, we've been making our way through Daniel. This morning we come to the end of a section of Daniel, the narrative section. We are in Daniel 6. If you'd like to go ahead and open up your Bibles to that place, we come to the end of a section, Daniel 6. And next week, God willing, we begin Daniel 7, which is the beginning of the prophetic literature or the prophetic aspect of Daniel and uh, very complex. Whatever prayers you'd like to offer on my behalf through the given weeks as we prepare this, I would appreciate them. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right up front, there are many different ways, many different um, scholars and commentators who understand Daniel, and there's always a slight nuance there. It is not my intention nor desire to get into every single nuance of every other interpretation of Daniel. I'm going to study Daniel, and by the spirit of the living God, I'm going to hopefully give you the interpretation that I deem is right, and if you disagree with it, that's fine. We can have a conversation. Uh, Daniel, books like Daniel and the book of Revelation just have this. It's so broad in terms of how people understand it. Uh, I'm going to tell you what the Lord has laid on my heart, and then we can ferret it out from there. This past week, uh, I was having a conversation with a good friend, and we were talking about Daniel and, and one of the primary themes of Daniel being faithfulness, right? And, I mean, you can't miss it. That has been a primary theme of Daniel, Daniel 3, Daniel 6, all the aspects of how would God's people react. And he asked me this question. He said, yeah, but Brad, what about when we don't, when we don't follow the example of Daniel? What about when we're not faithful. What is, what is the answer then? Because we can see that God is calling us to faithfulness, and he is. Daniel is putting faithfulness on display so that we can learn and grow. But beloved of God, what is it? What of it? What of it? What of it when you find yourself in a situation and you see scripture and you realize, I was not faithful? What do you do? Do you despair? Do we, do we get down on ourselves for not having done all the right things? This is where I think, this is where I know we come back to the gospel and we are reminded of the truth of the living Christ that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God because here's the reality. I'm not always going to do it correctly and neither are you. We're going to find ourselves in the valley of the shadow where we have an option to be faithful or unfaithful, and we are going to choose unfaithfulness because it's either easier, because it's less painful, whatever reason we may attach to it. So, beloved, when we have two options when that happens, we can run to despair and shame and guilt, or we can continue to run to Christ and lay our shame and guilt at the foot of the cross where Christ has already taken it. Will you always be faithful? No. Will we always be found like Daniel? No. But beloved, if you are in Christ this morning, you are found worthy and loved by God. And no amount of mistakes on your part change that fact. The beautiful gift of repentance is one we should indulge daily. Daily. Life is repentance, Martin Luther said. And what is beautiful about that gift is God has given us a pathway that when we mess it up, to come back easily without shame, without guilt, and without fear. This morning, we continue looking at Daniel 6. We're looking at a different aspect now. We're looking at God's faithfulness. Not just Daniel's, but God's. When Daniel has put on display not just how God's people live faithfully in exile, but one of the things he's done is shown us how in exile, as God's people feel the weight of persecution, the weight of the world's hatred, 
what is God, what part does he play in all that? Well, Scripture tells us that our God is faithful. And that's kind of what Daniel 6 is getting at this morning as we kind of bring this chapter, bring this section to an end. It is a fitting exclamation point to be reminded as we now make our way into the prophetic literature as Daniel's going to begin to lay out the Messianic kingdom and, and human history as it will develop and, and God's, the gospel God thread that runs through all that. One of the things we are ending is this subtle reminder, not so subtle reminder, very poignant reminder that God is faithful. And as we get into the mysteries of life, we have a God who we can trust. Now, that doesn't mean everything's always going to make sense. That doesn't mean everything's always going to be easier just how you like it. But it does, we are reminded that God is trustworthy and he is with us. So without further delay, let's turn our attention now to these final 10 verses of chapter 6. This morning our study is chapter 6, verses 19 to 28. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues his work, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please now pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and its power. We thank you for the goodness and grace that you display therein. We thank you that it is this reminder that we can trust in you that when we are tempted to despair, we have a God of hope, that when we are tempted to fear, we have a God in whom, who gives us confidence. And so, Father, we pray for our hearts to be transformed this morning as we think through this passage of Scripture. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. One of the better-known Scottish missionaries in the 19th century is a man by the name of John Patton. Perhaps you have heard of or read about John Patton before. As I said, he was a Scottish missionary. He spent 49 years doing missionary work in islands in the South Pacific. And I don't just mean in tropical paradise. Most of the tribes he worked with were cannibalistic. It was dangerous. He, had, he, and he moved his family, and they, they stayed there. They gave 50 years, more or less, of their lives to the South Pacific tribes. Well, there's one incident that's recorded that 
his mission station came under attack one night as several tribes banded together and came to attack their family. The, the intentions of the tribe were to light their compound on fire, burn them out with the intention of taking their lives. And who knows what beyond that. As you can imagine, John, his wife, their children are inside hearing the ruckus, knowing the intentions, and they're fearful and they're praying. What else can they do at this point? They have no weapons. This is not a military station. This is a missionary station. They have one weapon, a powerful one at that, but a one weapon of prayer. And so they spent the night afraid and praying. No attack comes. No attack comes. No attack comes. At first light, he braves and tries to look out and see, and he sees that the tribes have more or less dispersed. There are still some leaving. They praise God and thank him for his profound mercies. About a year later, the chief of that tribe comes to Christ, converted, has received the Lord Jesus Christ. This man who had murderous intent now loves the Lord. And, he asked, and John Patton said, you know, y'all came to attack me about a year ago or so. What happened? I mean, you guys just left. And the chief said, well, when we got ready to attack, we saw a bunch of big men in shining garments around your compound, and so we dare not attack. We left. Now, make of that story what you will. I think it's beautiful. I think it's awesome. And it's just that reminder. Prayer is powerful, and God preserves his people. Talk about a faithful moment in the history of missionary work, and you have God intervening in human history to say, I love you. I'm with you. I will deliver you. Where do we see this most best displayed? At the cross of Jesus. What is the cross? The cross is God saying to his people, I love you. You are worth it to me. I'm delivering you. I am able to deliver you. And I will take all that separates me from you and lay it on my son so that now when you come through my son, you come to me, we will never be separated again. I can think of no better picture of deliverance than that gospel beauty truth. This is the same God that Daniel is talking about. When we, when we think of saving grace, beloved of God, we must understand that that is uniquely God's power. That is uniquely God's power. No other being in the world, in creation, or anywhere else has the power to save like Yahweh does. No other God, no other religion. So let every other uh, religion be a liar and God be true because that is how it is. God saves. God alone saves. I don't save, you don't save, we don't help God out in that salvation process. Yahweh saves. It's uniquely his power. And so when we, th that's why Daniel and his three friends of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, why were they never tempted to really put their lives in the hands of kings, in the hands of idols? You know why? Because however imperfectly, they were convinced that their God saves, not this other God, not this other king, not this other power. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is true. Yahweh is faithful. They understood an idea that has been articulated again and again throughout history, that they are immortal, that they are indestructible until God brings them home. In fact, one Civil War general has noted that people were commenting about his bravery, and he said he'd put his hands in the living God. He said, so I'm as safe in battle as I am in my bed because I'm in God's hands. 
And beloved of God, when we accept, when we really believe, when we really believe that we are safe in battle because we are in God's hands, and that doesn't mean we might not get wounded and walk with a limp, that doesn't mean that we won't experience hardships and hard times and trials, that we won't thirst and be hungry and be broken so that we can be mended again. All those things happen in battle. But what it means is, is that we are not in battle alone. That God is with us. That God keeps us. That God shoulders the burden that we can't carry. So that yes, we may walk with the limp, but we walk in the power of the living God. And that is powerful. Daniel 6 becomes an encouragement to the people of God because it reminds us of God's capacity to deliver his people, both body, body for sure, but definitely soul. God delivers his people, body and soul. Now, the, the, the glaring question, well, God doesn't always save like with Daniel or the patents. Why? Why doesn't God always save that way? That would seem, would, would seem to me to give him more and more glory if he did it. I don't know. I don't know why he doesn't do that every time. He knows, and I have to trust that. What I don't know, I don't know. But what I do know, I can say, he is our only source of, of salvific power, that Yahweh alone is the only source of salvific power. If we are looking to get that salvation in any other source other than the Lord of heaven and earth, we are wrong. I've said this before. I will say it again. There is one way to the mountaintop. One. And it is through Jesus Christ to God the Father. That is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Jesus. Because God alone is the saving one. So Daniel 6 is not telling us to be aloof. It's not telling us to be indifferent about hardship. It's not telling us to sing that old song that I despise, death ain't no big deal. If you want to, don't, don't look it up. Because if you do, just imagine yourself saying that to someone who's just lost a loved one and ask yourself, would that be a good thing to say to somebody, death, hey, brother, sister, I know you've lost your, 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 your mate, but death ain't no big deal. I mean, that mortifies me to think that someone would say that. But there is a song called Death Ain't No Big Deal. And that's wrong. Death is a big deal. Death is a big deal. So I'm not encouraging us, and neither is Daniel, to say, oh, well, we don't have to worry about this. It's no big deal. It is. But what has power over death? Life. What gives us grace to have joy in a season of deep lament as we grieve the loss of loved ones? The power of God. So no, don't be aloof. Don't be indifferent. What is Daniel telling us? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because God is with us. He's telling us who and what we trust is of vital importance. And if you've ever trusted in yourself and you've failed miserably, you know what it's like to trust in something that is not the Lord. I stand guilty of trusting in myself many times and realizing just doesn't get you anywhere. 
if we want faith, if we want the faithfulness, I said this last week, if we want the, the faithfulness of a person like Daniel, then beloved of God, we need to have the faith of a person like Daniel is known for his faithfulness, but it is powered by a great faith. All the Bible characters in history who are noted have been powered by great faith in the Lord. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this. I've already said it. Saving grace is God's power. Saving grace is God's power. You know, I don't know if how much you know about antiquity, how much you have studied other civilizations. Rome is one of the more unique civilizations in history in terms of, I mean, Alexander the Great was a genius, and his capacity for military invasion and was great. He had very little capacity for organized city-states or empires. Rome, however, did. Roman law is really kind of cool when you look back at the ancient world to see how organized they could be. Now, I'm not saying it was good or right, but how organized Rome was in the beginning before they kind of went so far down the path of immorality that there was no return. It was very pragmatic and it was very utilitarian. Now, in Roman law, there was no sanctity of life. Not that they didn't worship the human body much like the Greeks did. There was some of that there. But there was not sanctity of life in the sense that you and I would think of it. They didn't see life as sacred. They saw life as pragmatic and utilitarian. What use is your life within the empire, within the home? And so life within Roman law was only as worthy as the father said it was. The father had complete control over his house. Your life in your father's house was only as valuable or worthy as he said it was. And if he said you didn't deserve to live, you didn't live. If he said you deserved a place at the table, you got a place at the table. When you look at that, you know what it tells you in Roman law? There was no hope for the weak. The weak had no protection. The law wasn't geared to protect the weak. It was geared to empower the strong to do what is necessary to keep order. It is no wonder that when Christians started growing in Rome and they were confronted with the prerogative of the father to kill a child, to just throw them out, and so oftentimes it was daughters who became the victim of this who were just left to die through exposure and starvation. Do you remember one of the early ministries of the Christians was rescuing those babies? Why do you think? Because of two reasons, I'll tell you. Because they understood as Christians, there's a sanctity to life. Life is sacred. We are made in the image of God. And two, they had been confronted with their own salvation. What is the response to that? To work for the weak, to help them find deliverance from death. Not in a, not in a salvific way, salvation soul way. I mean, literally, these early Christians were imitating what God had done for them spiritually. And so... Trying to stand for the sanctity of life is not a thing that we've been doing since Roe v. Wade. It's a thing that the church has been doing for two millennia because we are created in the image of a God who saves. When we look at this final paragraph we just read a few minutes ago, we're looking at the miracle. It is a miracle, a miracle of rescue, a profound miracle of rescue. We see the power of God, and it's seen most completely in his power to save. I've already highlighted that the gospel is the perfect picture of this, that the gospel that Jesus comes to save sinners who can't save themselves by the power of his life and blood is the perfect picture of what physically happens here in Daniel. So the power of God is seen 
most completely in his power to save? When we're looking at this paragraph, we'll break it up into two sections. Verses 19 to 23 are more the deliverance part. We're, we're described, uh, or the writer is describing the deliverance. And so when we are looking at this, we're looking at this paragraph, and we are seeing God's willingness, not only his willingness, God's ability to show and exert his power. What is deliverance in this context? Well, A, it's deliverance. I mean, it, that is what it is, so that's not a trick question. It's also God's heart on display. When we see this, what we're looking at is God's heart for his people. His heart is to deliver his people. So his people trust in him because he is the one who delivers them. Now, again, we're confronted with Darius's love for Daniel. Verse 19, at the break of day, literally at first light, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And it says in verse 20 that he had a tone of anguish. And so we're looking at the heart of Darius. Darius loves Daniel. That's been made clear again and again. But as we are reminded in verse 18 that the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. No diversions were brought in. Well, he's about to find out that the Lord imposed a fast on the lions as well. The lions who were ravenously hungry, as we read later on in the paragraph, spent a night fasting. Both of them fasted for the same reason. They had been confronted with Yahweh's servant Daniel. Daniel had been brought into the life of Darius, and Daniel had an impact. Daniel was mixed in with those lions, and by the ministering spirits of God, the angels of the Lord, Daniel had an impact. So we're seeing this man of God who has an impact wherever he goes. Why? Because he's such a great guy? Well, no, because the Lord is with him. I mean, he probably was a great guy. I'm not taking anything away from him, but the Lord was with him. The king didn't eat that night. The lions didn't eat either. But I love this. I'm coming back around to this. We looked at this last week. When the king calls out to him, O Daniel, how does he describe him? O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, again, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, he doesn't just leave it at Daniel because there's only one Daniel down there. Right? So it's not like he's having to ferret out which Daniel is going to answer him. There's one. Why do you think the writer keeps throwing that little, that little phrase back in there? Servant of the living God, whom you serve continually. He keeps using this phrase to make a point about Daniel. That Daniel is the guy who serves his God continually without regard for the circumstances. Look at where this Daniel is. He's in a den of hungry lions. He's alive. He's in a den of hungry lions. Why? Because he refused to serve his God. Whether he's being thrown to lions, whether he's being threatened with death from not bowing down to a statue, he is serving his God. And so the writer is making a point about Daniel that we look at him and we rightly think, wow, this, this guy is exemplary, and he is, because come hell or high water, as we say in the South, he serves his God continually, doesn't stop. And beloved, that speaks to us. When, when, we, when we, we should find it compelling that someone without regard for the circumstances remains steadfast in their service. Would that we all be that way? Could you imagine the awakening this world could experience if the church really bound itself together and we served our God continually? A powerful, powerful message would go forth. 
this, when I think on these two verses, verses 19 and 20, it, it reminds me that you and I, what are we called to do? We're called to live solely Deo Gloria. What does that mean? For the glory of God alone. It was one of the battle cries of the Reformation. The reformers were trying to get the church to re-embrace the fact that the Christian doesn't live for pleasure or for self or for prosperity. We live for the glory of God. What does that look like? Well, it looks like standing for righteousness when it's easier to stand for evil. It looks like pursuing holiness when it's easier and perhaps even more fun at times to pursue our flesh. It looks like doing things with excellence because the world around us does them so poorly by being excellent in all that we do, we stand out. It looks like loving people who are unlovely because as unlovely as we are or have been, God loved us. It looks like embracing the weak and the awkward and those who are filled with shame, not, for any other, not to lord over them, but to walk with them in truth and grace and justice and help them. Living solely deo gloria, the question asks, not can I do it, but how will this glorify God? And I love that Daniel, though he never uses that phrase, that's how he lives his life. How will this glorify God? How can I glorify God in evil times? Beloved, how can we be identified by our service to God, and especially, especially in evil times? We live in evil times, but every generation could say that, of course. We live in evil times. How can we live for the glory of God? By standing against what is evil and doing so with love and charity and graciousness. And when we screw up, mess up, that's a little more appropriate, sorry. When we mess up, when we mess up, what's the best thing we can do is own it take responsibility, repent, and move on. The best thing we can do, because if you're like me, you mess up a lot. And the best thing we can do, and I don't, for the record, I don't always own it and take responsibility. Sometimes I try to self-justify and get out of it. So I'm preaching to myself here. But we live in a world where we can live for God, and when we don't, beloved, the best thing we can do is say, yeah, I made a huge mistake, and I shouldn't have done that. I need you and the Lord to forgive me for my actions. It is a powerful testimony in a world that is never wrong about anything. When we find Daniel's answer in verse 21, it is the answer to the question. So the king had, had, had posed a specific question to Daniel. Look, it was very, it's very different. Not Daniel, were you delivered? Not Daniel, did you survive? Has your God whom you serve continually been able... He's questioning God's ability. Was God able to deliver you from the lion? The lion's den. What does verse 21 say? Yeah, God was able. Yeah, God was able. He wasn't just able, he was willing. He was willing and able to save his servant in the lion's den. When Daniel utters that, O king, live forever, that is this beautiful, ringing truth that our God is willing and able to save his people. And then Daniel elaborates, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done uh, no harm. Can I make a theological application here? Because something really cool is happening. Of course, God miraculously intervenes for his servant. That's exactly what happens. What are you seeing when you see a man whose name, by the way, means God is my judge? God is my judge. 
kind of interesting given this scenario here, who's standing in the midst of lion's den, this man created in the image of God, and they are subdued, they take their rest, they don't harm him. What are we getting a picture of? You remember Eden before sin comes into the world? When God tells Adam to Adam and Eve to, to rule and have dominion over all creation, and we see Adam, or we see Adam and Eve having dominion over all the animals. Well, again, you're getting pictures of messianic kingdom here, which Daniel is about to start talking about. You're getting pictures of how God's creation was made good in the beginning and how man was able to have dominion over the creatures. Now, it's, it's a brief glimpse. It's a brief glimpse of what Yahweh is up to in bringing creation to fulfillment in Christ. But I love this idea that here's this man with beasts who are normally uh, carnivorous and would tear him to pieces, and yet they lie subdued in the way that God created them. It's a powerful picture of what God is up to, of how he's bringing order more and more and more to the chaos of sin, that he's bringing life more and more and more where there was death. And it's a beautiful thought. It's a beautiful picture. We have this, and it's wonderful. I love what Daniel says. I was found because I was innocent before you, and also before you, I was innocent before him, he's speaking of God, and before you, O king, I've done you no harm. Daniel is telling us why did God, why was God willing to save him? Well, for one of the reasons was Daniel is, stands vindicated here. Why? Well, I, I was saved because I was innocent, literally what he says. I was not guilty of, of what they charged me. So do we take then, oh, because Daniel had done all the right things, God saved him because he had been faithful? No. What we're looking at here is Daniel saying, I wasn't saved because I'm right. I'm right, and God saved me to show you, O king, that I stood right, that I stood for you, that I had done my job, and these other people were evil. God is vindicating his servant. God is vindicating his servant before a pagan world. So we're not saying that he's saved by works here. In fact, when we think of the person that Daniel points to, which is Christ, when Christ comes walking out of the tomb on the third day, one of the things we understand is that God is the Father is vindicating the Son. When Jesus comes walking out of that tomb, we understand that everything this man said and taught and preached is absolutely true. He's vindicated. Now, he was also faithful too, perfectly faithful, the type of faithfulness that we can achieve. But the point stands that Daniel here is saying, because I was faithful to the Lord, he vindicated me before you. When he speaks about the angels doing him no harm, I want us to acknowledge something. Yes, pictures of Eden. Yes, the angel had shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel was still in a dangerous circumstance where wild beasts could have easily taken one swat and done him in. Do we say that Daniel was delivered from danger? Well, no. We say that in the danger, Daniel was delivered. And that's an important point for us to make because so often the prayer is, keep me out of the danger, and pray that by all means. And, and let's hope that God does that. But beloved, it is no less a beautiful deliverance than when we're in the danger that we're kept from it. So he didn't save them, he didn't save him from the den. He was with him in it. 
And to me, this is the most encouraging thing because so often I don't want to be in the den at all. I would love to just say, well, God saved me from the den completely. How do we grow in faith and faithfulness? Well, primarily by having to trust in hard times and realizing that the power of God can be powerfully worked in us when we do. And so I don't learn faith until I begin to walk through hard times and am compelled to trust that the Lord will see me through. Maybe some of you are there right now and you're finding it hard. You're saying, I've been in this den far too long and I'm ready to be done. I bleed with you, I do. Let me encourage you to continue to ask for faith, continue to pray for faith, continue to look to God in faith, and may he answer. Verse 23, then the king was exceedingly glad, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. In other words, everything Daniel had just said was true. He wasn't harmed, not a scratch. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. That is powerful. That is powerful. Why was Daniel brought out unharmed? Why was Daniel brought out unharmed? Well, God's mercy. That's God's mercy. What does the text say? He didn't live for rescue. Daniel didn't trust insofar as he was rescued. He trusted and served God continually. And God rescued him. Can you imagine the bolster in our faith and faithfulness the more we see God move and work? Beloved, I love this note. They're trying to make sure we don't separate that Daniel had a living, active trust in his God and that it compelled him to live in a different way. You know, you and I are called to trust whether we are rescued or not. We are. We don't live for rescue Well, we shouldn't. We shouldn't live for pleasure. We shouldn't live for happiness. We should live for God. And repent when we don't. Live for God, trusting that he will see us through. So we trust God when it's easy. We trust God when it's hard. We trust God in all things. And there's a real simple reason why. Because trusting in anything else is folly. Trusting in anything else leads to death. Because he is our only hope. Just briefly, these last few verses, we have the, we have the, um, the praise rendered, or praise given and judgment rendered here. Verse 24 is an interesting verse. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. Pretty brutal. Pretty pervasive. They, their children, and their wives. People have questions of the centuries. Why? That's brutal. It's like, well, if you live in a culture with no sanctity of life, why would you expect anything less than brutality? This is also a way to keep people from having, you know, uh, taking vengeance for, uh, it was a way to keep control, (laughs) See what happens to you and your family if you mess with the kingdom. But it's interesting here. In the Aramaic, in the text, in the Aramaic, when it, where you see there the ESV says maliciously accused. I don't know what, if you're using a different Bible translation, it says something else. The literal, the literal translation is, and the men who had eaten the pieces of Daniel. 
That is an Aramaic idiom. To eat the pieces of is an idiom that means to maliciously accuse, to try to tear down, to try to demean and, and, and destroy, to slander. And so we are confronted with these conspirators who had eaten the pieces of Daniel, who had falsely and maliciously accused him. And so when you see what's going on here and you see, oh, then they were met before they hit the den floor and were crushed and were eaten to pieces, they are getting the very thing they tried to do to Daniel. So is God a God of the detail? Yeah. Is judgment gross and, and dirty? Yeah. In this case, for sure. But it's interesting what they had tried to do to Daniel, they received in themselves physically. But it reminds us of scriptural principles, beloved. And, and let us not get, let us remember this. Remember what Jesus said to, uh, when he was teaching? With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Press down, shaking together, running over. People typically use that in a positive context, and it can be. But with the measure you use, it's measured back to you. Or, as Paul would later say, you reap what you sow. These men had reaped, or these men had sown in death, and now they're reaping in death. Daniel closes this section out with the global proclamation of Darius, peoples, nations, languages. You see that replicated throughout the scriptures in Revelation, tribes, nations, tongues. You'll see this again, indicative of the whole earth. Darius is making a global proclamation about what? God is eternal. God is powerful. God is a saving God. In fact, as we read this benediction earlier, this could be read from any Christ-following church in America right now. What he says is absolutely true. And so what does that tell us about Daniel? Well, through Daniel's life and God's powerful rescue, Darius sees the truth. Perhaps dimly, I don't know, because he says the God of Daniel. He doesn't own this in any personal way. How deeply did Darius feel it? I don't know. And it doesn't really matter. It matters for his soul, but it doesn't matter for how we understand this. Maybe he felt it deeply, maybe he didn't. That's not the point. The point is, is that through the life of this faithful servant of God and through the power of God, this man makes a proclamation that is absolutely true. But what does this tell us about us? Well, your testimony in life is important. <laughs> It should reflect God to the world. Can we have that impact on people? Beloved, you don't have to be a theologically trained pastor. You don't have to be the smartest theologian. We have to love God and live our lives loving God and let people see that, and that can make an impact in places that we never even dreamed. It should never be lost on us that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Who did we overcome? The power of the evil one. How? By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Our testimony is important. And so we don't merely stand against evil. We live for what is right because God commands us to do so. And when we fall down, we repent, we own it, and we continue moving back towards the Lord. God's deliverance is sure because he is willing and able. He is willing and able. When we hear the word deliverance, you've probably thought it to yourself already this morning. When we hear the word deliverance, we often assume that it means complete escape. And often we probably do try to mean it that way. Does the word deliverance always mean 
complete escape? Well, in God's economy, deliverance doesn't merely mean escape from the outward, uh, outward circumstances. It means that we're kept from destruction. It means that we're kept from destruction. So yeah, there are times where God completely and miraculously delivers and delivered and will do it. And there are times where his deliverance is much more of, my grace is sufficient for you. I've delivered you from destruction. You'll walk through the pain, but you'll not be destroyed. I would much rather have complete escape, but my heart and soul needs to walk through the pain. Deliverance is God's gracious intervention into the messes we make, giving us new hearts, new strength, and new mindset. There are times when God does give us complete and total escape, but often deliverance looks like his presence with us in the midst of what we suffer. Jesus is the embodiment of God's deliverance as he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. When we look at the cross, we see deliverance on a wonderful scale. Beloved, this morning, whatever you're in, whatever mountaintop you're on or valley you're in, God is willing and able to deliver you, and you can trust him. And he can give you the grace and the strength to be faithful. And when you're not, he gives you a pathway back through repentance and Jesus' blood. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness, that you are trustworthy, that we can trust you. Be with us, I pray. Help us to, help us to own our mistakes. Help us to be repentant of heart. Help us to live life in view of others simply, but with truth in view, with holiness in view. Forgive us when we don't. Help us to love you more, to love you more, to constantly ask the question, how can I glorify the living God? It's through Christ we pray. Amen.